Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this is our November episode where we've got a lot of news, a few little comments on some stories, but we're going to be talking about regenerations. I wonder why that could be, Rob. Oh, you've stumped me there, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a look at regenerations of the past, so we can maybe make some predictions or talk about our desires for regenerations of the future. But Rob, how have you been? I've been well, Dave. I've been really well. It seems so long since we recorded our Davo episode, and we've done so much since then, like the Babylon 5 episode, and I've been chunking out some You and Who episodes and, and so on. But it seems so long ago. Uh, it was. It was a little while ago. Now, this day that we're recording right now, exactly 20 years ago, I was in the middle of running a Doctor Who convention, a three-day convention in Melbourne with Sophie Aldred. Is that right? Oh, Wow. That's a, that's a, it's amazing to me that that was 20 years ago, and it's amazing to think that 20 years ago tonight, right on this night, I and a couple of other committee members were sitting on the stairs sharing a bottle of scotch with Sophie Aldred, who was telling us tales of uh, filming Doctor Who with <laughs> Sylvester McCoy. <laughs> that is awesome, and I'm guessing you remember this because tomorrow is the 23rd, so was it? did it start the day before the anniversary? That's right, yes. So uh, a big shout out to my friend Richard, who basically put his life on hold and almost gave himself a hernia running that convention. <laughs> Sounds like it was worth it, though. It was worth it. And in fact, that was the convention where I mentioned in the Babylon 5 podcast at 2am, someone pulled out the latest episodes of Babylon 5 season 4 straight from the US and we watched them until about four in the morning. Oh, wow. And if you haven't heard that Babylon 5 episode and you're at all interested in B5, do give it a listen. It was a lot of fun to make. It was. It was. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for all those who've given us some very nice feedback about that one. It is appreciated. Absolutely. We've actually got a very long letter about it at the end of this episode. We have. We have. We've also got a very long list of news items. <laughs> we do. After last time where we... Do we have one item or something? Now we've got a million. Yeah. Last, last month we were sort of... St- scraping to sort of, you know, oh, I guess that counts as news. We'll talk about that this month. And I think the day after we recorded, it was sort of massive <laughs> announcements and it hasn't stopped. That's right. They announced the, the the new TARDIS team, I think, the day or the day after we recorded the last episode. So it's like, oh. So let's start there, Rob. What do we now know about the new series? And then we can talk about what we are hearing as rumours about the new series. Okay, uh, what we know for sure is that Bradley Walsh is in it. Hey! <laughs> After months of speculating on this, he is in it. So I'm glad I had faith in him, Dave. I knew I knew it would happen because he hadn't been denying it. Yeah, we were starting to doubt ourselves, but no, it has come good. It has come good. We know there'll be 10 episodes and these episodes will be 50 minutes each. So unlike the 60-minute rumour where we're saying, how would that work? Because, you know, some stations need to have commercials. Not in Australia, of course, but in other markets. Uh, It's 10 episodes of 50 minutes each. That seems like a pretty good length to me. Well, in fact, my understanding is it's 7 of 50 and 3 of 60. Oh, golly, that's even newer information than I've got in front of me. Oh, that's what I had. And I think that's out of the radio time. So it should be right. Interesting. I think that those extra eight or nine minutes or 18, 19 minutes will give the production team, if they choose to use it, more time to really do those those little character beats and those little bits of development and detail that, that have always, to me, been missing from a lot of new Doctor Who. And I, I'm, really, I'm really encouraged by this news. Absolutely. Now, you say the team, but I'm hearing that this first season or series, at least, could be all Chibnall penned. 
Yes, that is the rumour, and I've also heard that it's all going to be effectively one long story. Mm. Now, there are some other rumours kicking about. I don't know what would be a spoiler, though, if they came true, Dave. What can we say? Uh, Look, I think we can say roughly stuff about format, can't we? I think format, but I, I in terms of the companions, it seemed like, I won't go too deep into this, but the companions might not all be together at the same time. Yeah, so you use the word companions, which is interesting because the press release that we saw simply referred to them as joining the Doctor Who family mm. as regular characters. Now, does that mean that they're companions? Does it mean that they are regular characters who aren't companions? Or are they going to be technically recurring characters as we've had before? You know, think about Rory, think about Danny Pink uh, a couple of years ago. Are they going to be that sort of thing? I, I, have they actually used the word companion? No, but maybe this comes back to the format of the show and it being a, a one big story. And maybe the Doctor's not travelling around in the traditional sense where you might have a companion, a travelling companion, but you might have people around you. Yeah, so... Let's just unpack that for a moment. Mm. I said a couple of episodes ago that I think we are heading into Series 11 with the biggest reset of the series since probably Season 18, maybe even Season 7, in terms of completely different, you know, that opening, music, style, tone, feel. It's going to be a whole new thing. I think Season 7 is not a stretch at all. I see a lot of parallels with 7, actually. Yeah, which gives me some confidence because that's probably my all-time favourite season. Mm. On the other hand, though, when I do hear this thing about it's going to be one long story of 10 episodes, I do I do sit there and think to myself, isn't the big advantage of Doctor Who that it is just all these little stories, all different styles, all different feelings, different times, different spaces? And if I want one long season story... I can go pretty much anywhere on television right now and get that. Mm. Do you know what makes me have a bit of faith? The fact that Chris Chibnall sat there on that TV show berating Trial of a Time Lord. So if anyone knows that one story can really suck, it's Chris Chibnall. Surely, unless he's become the thing he hates, Dave, at this point in his career. Look, that is true. And I'm also very aware that one long story doesn't mean that the story permeates all of the episode. It could be that it's a quest format or it's a mystery format or something. And in each episode, there is a good self-contained story on a different world in a different time, but that the narrative all builds towards one long thing. That would be okay. But I I do wonder, just, just because there is such a trend at the moment towards 10 to 13 story TV programs right now. That, that is that is completely on trend. Mm-hmm. I hope Doctor Who doesn't go down that path. I'm not saying that it will. I'm not, not, I'm not sitting here being one of these people going, well, I've assumed everything about this show and damn it, I hate it already. <laughs> I'm just worried that that path could be a difficult one. But I'm not saying it would be that path. I've got a feeling it could be that path, you know, because, you know, you think about Chibnall going to them and saying, look, I've got something different for you. Well, if he was just pitching story of the week, well, that's what Doctor Who already does, and that wouldn't be different. I think it could be this kind of thing, because it is what modern TV does, and they might be looking to do something different that's like other modern TV shows. I know why you would have reservations about that personally, but I think it could be what they're doing. Yeah, look, it could be, and it could be fabulous. It could be wonderful. That, 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 that is a warning bell, however, that was sounding in my mind that I am sharing with our listeners. Thank you. I will say that I mentioned a moment ago that we have this rumour that 
Chibnall's possibly penning it all. And I thought, how does this work regarding the writer's room? Like, we've heard for the longest time that there is going to be a writer's room. It's been talked about forever. So does that mean there is a writer's room and they're all feeding into him? Are they co-writing with him? So the episodes are Chris Chibnall and someone different every week. Or is that writer's room out the window and maybe that comes into effect in the next series? Maybe he's already got them writing on the second series and he's just doing the whole first series. I'm not quite sure how this works. No, but was the writer's room ever officially announced or was that always just a rumour? I'd like to say it was partly rumour, but also wasn't it like Mark Gatiss's comments like he's getting his own team of writers together and I won't be one of them. So he sort of knew that he wouldn't be involved, but there would be other people involved and maybe he knew some of those people. Although there wasn't an official announcement per se, people sort of knew that there was a new set of writers coming in. Yeah, that, that does sound right. And look, maybe it's going to be a case of, and we're going to reference it again, folks, something similar to Buffy, <laughs> where Joss Whedon was the overall showrunner and certainly had input into every script, but other writers in the writer's room did have a script that they helped to manage or helped to write or ideas they pitched within that overarching influence of Joss Whedon, a showrunner. Mm. Look, it's, it's so interesting. We might know more in another month's time. I think we will. Now, Dave, as well as speculating on the format of the series and as well as knowing that Bradley Walsh is in it, for example, and being introduced to two new companions or friends or members of the family, whatever they might be, we've also seen the Doctor's new costume. Again, we're not the first going out with this, but we did get a lot of feedback from listeners. So maybe before we give our thoughts, we could read a few uh, comments from our listeners. What do you think about that? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. Mike Solko said to us, I think it looks very good from the one image. We'll see if it becomes a template or a uniform. Best-selling author Hayden Gribble <laughs> said, it'll grow on many people, but I rather like it. Mm -hmm. Alan Lear, also from the Diddly Dumb podcast, says, I like it. The first female doctor might have been very severe and worthy, but this is playful and fun. Jonathan Guest says, it's a little too John Nathan Turnerish for my taste, to be <laughs> honest. But yes... Time to get away from it and dark and moody for a bit. Very true. And Shane Gordon says, I like it. The long coat of Tennant, short pants of Troughton, suspenders. Suspenders are cool of Troughton, McCoy and Smith. Boots like Capaldi and Smith, a simple shirt like Eggleston. She needs a hat. But, and this is a very important but in my mind, it looks something like the doctor would want to wear. Good stuff. Dave, do you agree or disagree with any of our listeners? I actually agree with all of them. Interesting. So I have a couple of analytical points to make on this, and I think then you have some wonderful fa fashionista Fashion. comments to make. To make. <laughs> yes. Uh, look, look, I think it's a perfectly good costume. I, I don't think you can really judge it without seeing it in action, but it's it's a pair of slightly unusual pants. It's a long jacket. That's that's pretty doctorish to me. Whatever. I, mm. I, I don't hate it. I don't love it. Um, I did observe, and I did think at the time, we've come a long way from the Russell T. Davies era of let's make the Doctor look normal, in inverted commas, to the Saturday Tea Time audience. We are now getting much more back to that idea of the Doctor in a costume. And indeed, we've seen over the course of the new series, moving from you know Christopher Eccleston in very ordinary everyday clothes to David Tennant in ordinary but slightly quirky more and more into that more manufactured and tailored uniform that Smith had. Now, it could be pure coincidence that he started doing that the moment the BBC shop started telling Fezzes and Mike Matt Smith jackets. Pure coincidence, <laughs> I'm sure. I thought Smithy got very costumey with that second one with the purple, long purple coat and that sort of look. 
Yeah, I, I, and I think we're more towards that end. So I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. The show evolves, the show changes. But interesting that it is a sign we are moving again away from that Russell T Davies mass audience soap opera-esque everyday normality feeling. Mm. Uh, my final comment was I thought this was an absolutely terrible photo. And and it, <laughs> it, it, it maybe it sort of uh, pressed my buttons a bit because I hate this idea of fandom being treated like a dancing monkey you know hey look at the cool photo now dance for us fans i i just don't like that it was it was photoshopped within an inch of its life the jacket isn't sitting like a jacket would sit it's sort of sitting almost you know thrown open uh, completely unnaturally to expose the rest of the costume it wasn't a natural photo it was an artificially posed artificially shot cgi'd photo to make fans wet themselves Mm. that put me off but the costume looks fine. Yeah, look, it was certainly photoshopped to within an inch of its life, as you say. And the proof of that was, I think, that weekend, I think a fella was at a convention who knew something about this from the BBC and said, oh, look, actually, the jacket is lilac. It's not beige. You know, I was certainly thinking it was beige when I first saw it. I thought, oh, that might be a nod to, you know, Davo there or something. But no, the jacket is apparently like a light lilac, but I think they've messed with the colour gradings and so much in Photoshop that it made the jacket look completely the wrong colour. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen the costume for the first time in a clip, like being worn so you can see it naturally, how it flows, how it looks under lights. But look, we got it how we got it. And how much can you analyse one photo, I guess, is my, my question. And I know you can do it a lot because I, I know, Rob, when you started tweeting about the socks, I thought, look, he's my podcasting partner. I love the guy, but yeah, dude, the socks, really? Well, let's talk about the socks, Dave. I looked at those socks, the little blue socks poking out of those boots, and I thought, they're blue socks. There's some white there. And then I looked at the white, and the white seemed to be two different thicknesses of white. And I thought, you know what, that could be a TARDIS window. This could be very meta and she could be wearing TARDIS socks. I think it was Dallas Jones, uh, formerly president of the Australasian Doctor Who fan club, tweeted at me and said, no, they're, they're just striped socks. But I'm not so sure. I think this could be a very meta thing going on there, Dave. But uh, look, on the whole, I looked at it and the first time I saw it, I was like, oh. And I was literally a, a bit taken aback. It wasn't quite what I thought it would be. Not that I think I really know what I thought it would be. I just didn't think it would be that. But it grew on me that day, and particularly as people started to do fan art and things of this nature, because as you say, you would have liked to have seen a clip and seen it moving and such. In fan art, people were drawing the jacket doing different things, and they were drawing her in different poses. And I could sort of get a feel for how this costume might go on her when she's moving about and running and, you know, doing all that sort of stuff. And I started to like it. The next day I logged in and looked at it again and I thought, you know what, I actually quite like this. To me, although it's costumey, I know what you're saying by it being costumey. It doesn't look like everyday wear. It looks like something a bit put together. It still looks bohemian. It looks colourful. It still looks practical. Like those boots would be wonderful for quarries and, you know, those pants hitched up nice and high on braces. They'd be very comfortable to sit in for hours. Yeah, I I, I agree with all of that. The bohemian look, the comfort. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So to me, it's almost a modern feminine version of something between Tom Baker's first costume and maybe Colin Baker's costume, but with its own style altogether. And I thought... Yeah, I, I get this. I totally get this. And one of our uh, our people here, Shane, said, you know, it's something that the Doctor would want to wear. I completely agree, Shane. I think it's very Doctorish. I know some people absolutely hate it, but I think this is really Doctorish. Yeah, I, I think that's all very fair comment. And on, on that note, Rob, I was equally amused slash baffled by the reactions on 
social media that included, well, that's it. They've destroyed Doctor Who. <laughs> or alternatively, Jodie Whittaker is the best Doctor ever. And if you don't agree with me, you basically hate puppies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's modern life, isn't it? People just sit at the extremes of everything. I it think is. you and I are the only two in the sensible centre, Dave. We try. We try. <laughs> what else has been happening in the Doctor Who universe this uh, this month, Dave? There was a scandal at DWM. <gasps> really? So, as my understanding of this is, the owners of DWM have decided to get a little bit more involved, um, particularly after the way that the previous editor has run the show. They are cutting the budget a bit for no doubt commercial reasons, and they're streamlining the content a bit. This resulted in one of their regular minor contributors now this is the thing i don't know whether he lost his job or he lost some of his job but certainly in his final article he left a message for the owners that was uh unprintable (laughs) yes indeed now i'd i'd heard about the message before i read the article in private eye the message what do you call those acrostics where you take the first letter of each sentence or each paragraph and it spells something Anyway, it might be an acrostic. He took the first letter of each sentence and it spelled, as you say, something unprintable about BBC Worldwide uh, and Panini. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Nicholas Pegg, for it is he, uh, was the watcher, uh, the final page in Doctor Who Monthly each each month. And it's actually a section of the magazine I really, really enjoyed. So I'm gutted that it's going, uh, Dave, because I thought it was a really good section. And yes, it was a protest about some sections going. I think one of these sections could be the Time Team, which is that group of four people who have been reviewing every episode of Doctor Who. They they just haven't finished yet, but I think that's being finished up because the guy who illustrates it posted some art on Twitter in the last day or two and said, this is my final artwork for the Time Team. So I think, you know, Time Team's gone, the Watcher's gone by his own hand, and gosh, there's a few sections of Dwim each each month that I really like. I just hope it's not all of them that are going because... mm, the magazine, you know, if it loses more than a few sections that I like, I might not get it anymore, Dave. I'm amazed that you still get it. I stopped buying Cardiff Pravda several years ago. <laughs> I Each year when the subscription would come up, I'd think, should I get it, should I not? And I'd think about the year ahead and think, I'd rather have it than not. But, yeah, look, there are some issues that I barely flick through, that's for sure. Fair enough. Now... I'm not normally one to excitement or hyperbole, as you know, Rob. <laughs> yes, I try and interest you in things, and you say, what good would that be to me if I could show you new merchandise or whatever? However, the next piece of news we have is, I think I can say, without exaggeration or hyperbole, the most exciting piece of news we've had since the series returned in 2005. That's a big call. It is, but the target range is coming back, apparently. <laughs> Tell us more. I was browsing on the Booktopia website last week, which is where I buy a lot of my books online. And of course, they have all these algorithms that tell you, here's some stuff that we're selling that you might like based on your previous purchase purchases. And a lot of my previous purchases have included the new edition releases of Target Novels over the last few years. And it came up and said, would you like to buy Doctor Who, the Target Collection, Rose, or The Christmas Invasion? Or The Day of the Doctor, or Twice Upon a Time. (laughs) And you thought, hang on, they haven't made those. Yeah, and and what's going on here? And I went and looked at a couple of other sites, and they were also selling them, so it wasn't some sort of prank. And although I don't think we've seen any official announcement, it seems as though they are releasing new 
in inverted commas, target books covering the new series. Yes, I don't think it's ready for them to, to quite announce because these are still way off into the future of next year. But they've obviously hit the schedules because the schedules come out a lot a lot earlier than um, than the PR does. Yeah, so a- April 2018 is when they're scheduled for release. Yeah, and look, you know, part of me is delighted with this news too, but another part of me, and I think I said this to you at the time, so it's not new to you, but it might be new to our listeners, I wonder, do kids really read books like we used to read the targets is there a desire to collect the episodes in book form like we did because when we did it there was a reason for doing it you couldn't just go and grab every episode or stream every episode now you can just re-watch and re-watch and re-watch do you need to read them at all do you want to collect a book I don't know. And, you know, with the NSA sales or the new series adventure sales being so disappointing, at least that's what I presume because they only put out about three every 12 to 18 months, will people buy these any differently? I mean, J.R. Southall suggested to me that the price might help because the NSA is a little hardbacks and perhaps a couple of pounds more expensive than these would be in the UK. And that might help, but it isn't everything. I just don't know if the market's there to, to really look at these, Dave. I think you're thinking of it the wrong way, Rob. Mm -hmm. These are aimed at fans like us who grew up on the Target novels, uh, have an unnatural romance with the Target (laughs) novels and and just want more. And just the idea of, well, I can collect Target novels again. It's like being a kid all over again. Now, we say Target novels. I don't think these are going to be the same sort of size or length or, or tone of what we think of as being a Target novel. Now, one of the releases is going to be the paperwork edition of City of Death, which already is out in hardback. So that tells you that we're talking, even if it's an abridged version, 240, 250 pages. And the Booktopia website says that they're all going to be 224 pages. Now, that's obviously a placeholding figure until they're finally written, edited and published. But mm. it's more than the you know 124 that we would expect from Target Novel, or even the 140-odd you might get on some of the later Targets. They're going to be more in-depth books than that. And, and we should note that Rose is supposed to be written by Russell T. Davies and Day of the Doctor by Stephen Moffat. Mm. Now, that's all true, but, you know, they can play with font size. I think I've got... I think some of my NSAs are probably in the 200-page range, but the font is really big, like much bigger than you'd find in a Target novel. So, you know, maybe they'll all look a similar size, but some will be more in-depth than others, perhaps, because something like Rose, I mean, you could bang that out like a Target novel. There's not much to it. Well, look, I'm excited because about a year ago, I finally got hold of the last book that I needed to have a complete run of Target and Virgin Books from an unearthly child through to the dying days, all the new adventures, all the missing adventures, all the targets, and I was kind of like the coyote after catching the Roadrunner. <laughs> you know, what do I do now after 30-something years of collecting targets? I have nothing more to collect, and now I do. I have a whole new Roadrunner to chase. Dave, you, you have something more to collect. All the EDAs and PDAs, mate. <sighs> yeah. Next item. <laughs> Next item. The first Doctor was on the cover of Doctor Who magazine, Dave. Did you like the first Doctor on the on the front of Doctor Who magazine? Look, I'm I'm the wrong person to ask. I know that's why I'm asking. I, I know. I, I, I am in a very difficult position here because of the people who are watching Doctor Who now. Only a very small subset of that are fans. A smaller subset of that are classic series fans, predominantly. A smaller set of that are ones like me who actually have the Hartnell era on very high rotation and would regularly watch Hartnell stories throughout the year 
listen to them on audio again and again and know that Hartnell's doctor and mm. love Hartnell's doctor in absolute detail. Therefore, it's very, very difficult for me to put Hartnell out of my mind and accept that somebody else is playing the first doctor. So I don't see the first doctor when he's on the cover. I see somebody playing William Hartnell playing the first doctor. But I'm totally unrepresentative of, I think, basically the rest of the universe. <laughs> well, let's bring something else into the mix. The Children in Need preview clip of the Christmas special where we got a, a good look at Bradley playing the first Doctor. Did that help or hinder this point of view that you have? I'll be honest, it hindered it because... Look, once again, can I just make a side point here? Mm -hmm. There was a time when these Children in Need specials would have their own specially commissioned pieces of work. Yeah. Specifically designed to sort of be in the right zeitgeist, in the right sense of fun for a Children in Need special. Now what they do is they try and find a Children in Need moment out of an existing episode, which I suspect is actually completely tonally incongruent to the rest of the episode. So I'm not, I'm not judging anyway, and I'm just noting that we've gone from commission work to, uh, just play that 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. I said at the time that this was announced, I thought that he played William Hartnell very, very well in an adventure in space and time. I love an adventure in space of time. The plot is absolute bollocks and it is historically completely up its own ass. But it's a lovely, <laughs> lovely telly movie. And he yeah. was great in that playing Hartnell. He wasn't great in that, I didn't think, playing the first Doctor. And I don't think he's great here. But again, I'm somebody who is so familiar with the subtleties and the nuances of the first Doctor that I'm going to be more judgmental. So I should be asking you, Rob, how did you think about it? Well... I'm having really mixed emotions about it all because I was someone who grew up with, say, Richard Herndl in The Five Doctors. So I'd be hypocritical to think, you know, that that story was so fun and delightful and not be upset about Herndl being in The Five Doctors at all, but then go right off the beam about Bradley. Yeah, when, yeah. when in truth, he looks more like Hartnell than Herndl does and has had more time spent on his costume and so on. I mean, we could get into the performance. The performance, you know, neither of them probably quite get there. Yeah. You know, so I confess to mixed emotions. Um, I'm I'm not just sure how it will play out. You know, I flagged before on the podcast that that scene of the first Doctor leaping on that chain and dropping through the floor just seems very unfirst Doctorish. You know, I, I just don't imagine Bill Hartnell doing that at all. And we're meant to believe that this is fitting in with you know the tenth planet where he's particularly frail. I I, I just don't see him doing that. And also the clip itself, you know, it had Moffat's humour writing, you know, a little bit too evident. I was talking to Rob from 42 to Doomsday about the World War One line where the Doctor just briefly mentions World War One, and the officer is like, World War One, Like, you know, suddenly twigging that there might be a World War Two, um, But that's then completely undercut by humour. And it's like, oh, I think we could have stayed on that moment for a bit longer, you know? Or is the whole episode going to be like, you know, snappy lines, like, you know, Moffat trying to be Joss Whedon? And again, I wouldn't be surprised if we found that that scene was slightly differently edited when it actually appears in the special properly. And I wonder if it has been tweaked or tightened to fit that children in need special vibe. Look, it could be. Good point. And, and that's why I say I'm not going to judge it. They, they, they've, they've no doubt taken the most children in need-like segment of the episode. And this is probably the extreme edge of that humorous sort of thing. And we'll find the rest of it actually is very, very different. Or, you know, this is the lighthearted bit from the first five minutes and it gets darker and more serious as you as you move towards the regenerations. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not judging it. 
did I like the scene? No. Did I think the performance was good? No. Am I judging the episode by it? No. Okay, so we've both got a bit of trepidation, maybe for slightly different things. But hey, our listener Rob Kelly said he absolutely loved it and Christmas can't come soon enough, he tweeted to us. I would love to meet Rob one day because he seems to be one of the most happiest people on the <laughs> he internet. He, he, he is just excited and smiling about everything. And it's nice to have people like that around. It is lovely to have people like that around because that is not me. <laughs> All right, moving on. I shouldn't be laughing because this is this is a serious topic. Um, sadly, we've had Dudley Simpson pass away in the, in the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, long-time Doctor Who composer. I think he started on Planet of Giants and went all the way through to the Horns of Nymon. Wow. He was the composer on all but three or four episodes of Blake 7. He did the theme tune to The Tomorrow People, which was iconic. So many parts of Doctor Who are linked into his work. I had the pleasure of meeting him in 1991 at a convention, and he was a lovely, lovely man who just loved his craft. And uh, yeah, it's sad that he's gone, but he got to into his 90s, I believe. So good life. He did. He did really well. And for me, I, I said this at the time, and I still stand by it. I believe he's the first Doctor Who person I ever saw in real life, circa 1988. There is a possibility I saw Katie Manning first, but I'm sure it's Dudley Simpson was the first one I at least spoke to in real life and got his autograph and so on. At the uh, at the party that Katie Manning came along to, I had to leave early, and so I left my book with someone for her to sign. I saw her panel, and then I left um, but Dudley, I actually went up and spoke to at the end of it. So aged about 13, he was either my first or second person I saw from the show. And that's very exciting. I, I can still remember the one of the panels that he did. I, I can't really remember the Q&A that he did at the convention I saw him at. But he had another very technical panel. And what he did is he brought out uh, some movie he'd done the score on. And he played about four minutes of it without the soundtrack, just the, the, the voices. And he said, okay, now let me play it with my soundtrack and then let me explain what I did to get it from the first to the second. Mm. And it was just this wonderful thing where he just talked about his craft. And, yeah. and, and you know, I was about 10 at the time. I can remember that really vividly. Um, and, and one final point, I remember there was one time they were getting ready for the closing ceremony and there were a few things on stage that weren't quite working and they were just sort of rushing around, not started, and he went to his keyboard and just started playing the Blake 7 theme just to entertain everyone while things were getting fixed up. <laughs> wow. I yeah. wish I had been there for that. Yeah, so that was nice. Wale, Dudley, Wale. On a more interesting note, now I go to a lot of movies, as you know, Rob. I've seen 48 this year now. I know. You, you are a fiend for the movies, Dave. Twice in the last two weeks, I was sitting there waiting for... Uh, Murder on the Orient Express and the Justice League to start. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there's this big thing on the screen. Back in 1979, I'm thinking, what happened then? Doctor Who made a story that was never completed. <laughs> and blow me down, they're doing a trailer for Sharda. In wow. <laughs> it was just blown away. That's, yeah, look, I've I've got really funny feelings about this. I mean, we've both got funny feelings about them redoing Sharda at all, don't we? Yes, Yes. yes, but these these movie things at the cinemas, I mean, when they did the 50th, that was an event. I get that. I didn't actually go, but I could see that it was an event, and I applauded that they did it, and I thought, how exciting for the fans. 
But now it seems they want to keep going back to that well. Look, oh, there's there's geek cash to be ripped off these people. You know, let's rip it out of their wallets every year. Let's let's put something on at the movies or, or a couple of things on at the movies, like a Power of the Daleks and the Christmas episode from last year and, and, and so on. I, oh, I'm very cynical about this sort of thing, Dave. Um, in truth, the 50th was probably a bit of a cash gouge as well, but at least it seemed justified. I don't see this as being worthy of being at the cinema at all. I think it's a bit silly. I can understand doing a few dedicated screenings for the fans that want to see it. I'm stunned that not just before a couple of movies, before multiple movies that I've seen, they're trying to get the general public to rock up to something that is half filmed, half semi-okay animation. Like, yeah. do they do they generally think a mainstream audience, someone who's rocked up to the Justice League, is going to go, ah, oh, that thing. I want to see that. I'll spend 22 bucks on that. <laughs> yeah, well, again, it reminds me of Power of the Daleks. They kept talking it up, this lost Dalek story, and it's going to be so good, and it's this and it's that. And I was saying, no, it's this really dodgy animation. It's bloody horrible. It'll look stupid on the big screen. People will walk out of it. And lo and behold, I know people who went along and witnessed other people walking out of it. That's right. But they also have confirmed they are doing movie screenings of the Christmas episode. <sighs> Save me. Save me. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't be going. I did go to the Day of the Doctor screening. And again, I think that's very valid. I think that was a genuine event. I don't think, you know, putting a, a DVD release on the big screen is an event. No, look, if they do a couple of screenings and a few of the dedicated fans go, that's fair enough. I won't be one of them. Fair enough. Now, Dave, to round out our news this uh, this month, I've bought a new audio release, and it's not a big finish release. It's a BBC release of the Five Doctors novel being read by John Coleshaw. Now, that's an interesting concept. Does it work? It does. I listened to it just today. It came out at the start of November. I ordered it through Book Depository not long after I got it, and I've listened to it today. It's exactly like you imagine it to be. Of course, the great irony being that John Coleshaw is best known for his Tom Baker impression, but it's probably the voice he doesn't get to use all that much in Five Doctors. <laughs> However, he's quite good with his Pertwee. His Pertwee is very good, actually. He has a red-hot go at a, a breathless Davo. Uh, <laughs> he does a very Aussie Tegan that's quite funny. Uh, his Brigadier and Pat Trout and the lovely. It's, it's really good stuff. I'm not normally one for these things, but you've piqued my interest with this, I've got to say. Yeah, look, I've got, um, I think I've got Castrovalva, um, which is a fairly straight reading, whereas this, to me, it seemed more like an event because the story itself is a very special story to many of us, and it's being read by this guy who is a master of voices. I mean, did you ever hear that prank call that he did on Sylvester McCoy, where yes. he's pretending to be Tom Baker? Yes, <laughs> he's I asking did, yes. Him all these strange questions, and Sylvester eventually says, Tom, have you been at the pub? <laughs> <laughs> It's just wonderful. So this this does feel more more than a release. It feels to me like a a very special thing. If even if you don't normally buy them, I think this is a special sort of one. Yeah, no, no, you have piqued my interest with that one. I may well check that out. And for the people out there, for yourself, and for the people out there who listen to it, there is only one voice in the whole thing that's slightly disappointed when he started doing it. To me, it sounded almost like Fat Albert. If you remember the Fat Albert cartoon show, yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to say which character it was. I'll see if anyone can pick it. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Obviously, it's not Sarah Jane or someone like that. It's, you know, it's, but it's someone in there and he started doing the voice. I was like, ooh, is that how you're going to do that voice? Jesus, okay. 
Okay. Now, it's not on our run sheet, Rob, but news that came in overnight. Mm-hmm. Delia Derbyshire, who realised the very first Doctor Who theme. Yes. She's been awarded a honorary posthumous PhD from Coventry University. Oh, wow. Oh, look, very well deserved. Yes. Very, very well deserved. She was an absolute pioneer in her field and very, very well deserved. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe had a tough time with the BBC later in her career and, you know, things didn't go so well for her. So absolutely deserved. Good. So we've got a couple of minor topics this week, Rob, but only a couple because we have got a lot to get through. We do. I've been challenging myself in the last couple of episodes to watch stories that I wouldn't normally watch. And last month, Steve from the New to Who podcast, a very good podcast. Hello, Steve. Challenged me to watch The Dominators. Yes. And I did. Okay. And what did you think? I had very mixed thoughts. Mm. The stuff with The Dominators and The Quarks and the TARDIS team, I actually think is not bad. It's it's straightforward, Troughton era sci-fi. Mm-hmm. As you start to interact with the Dolcians on the island where they are, that does start to drag a little bit. When you introduce the rest of the Dolcians back at their capital city, that's where the real problem goes. So the writer can't seem to decide what the problem with the Dolcians is. It starts <laughs> off that they're just a bit unimaginative. It then goes down to this uh, science fiction cliche, and it was a cliche even by 1969, of the race or the population that has abolished violence, destroyed all their weapons, so what happens when bad aliens come and invade them? Mm. It doesn't actually go down that path, though, and then they devolve to the point where they are so tedious and so boring that somebody gets himself killed for arguing about whether the Dominator has an appointment or not. <laughs> And this this does come to the point that I think Steve was making to me when he suggested I watch it. I always took the message of the Dominators as being very similar to that out of the Daleks, where Ian says there are some things you have to fight for. Pacifism is a noble ideal, but we live in the real world and there are some rights and some freedoms that you need to fight for. And I sort of put the Dominators in that category, but but it's it's not. The, The Dominators is not that subtle. It is not that intelligent. And it is actually quite unformed and unpleasant when it comes to the Dolcians, which is a shame because within there, there is some good stuff. I mean, there's some very stupid stuff. Um, but even, you know, even later on in the story, there's a lovely part where you've, you've got the stupid Dominator who just wants to blow everything up and isn't very good at his job. <laughs> and by part five, you sort of think, well, we, can, we, we know we're going to get away from him because he's just so hopeless. Yeah. But then there's the, there's the chief Dominator who's very good at his job. And when he says, right, enough of this, I'm going after them, you do think, ooh, this, this is for real now. He's the, he's the, he's the good one. He's, yeah. the, you know, he's the one that could get us. So I liked all that stuff. But, yeah, it, it goes from the, the Dolcians being dull to being cliched to actually being quite unpleasant, and that made it quite an unpleasant watch. Yeah, it's certainly not the best. And I made the joke last podcast that uh, by the end of it, I was going for the Dominators. So um, I'm, I'm going to largely concur with you and say, yeah, it's it's not that good. Yeah, but I am glad I watched it. Now, for next month, although I haven't been personally challenged, both the Flight Through Entirety guys and the Blue Box guys have been waxing lyrical about Ghostlight for quite a while now. Mm. I have watched Ghostlight maybe once in the last 20 years. 
So I'm going to challenge myself to watch that and try and see it through their eyes and try and appreciate it. But listeners, if you have any stories that uh, you think I maybe haven't watched for a long time and I should put myself through and challenge myself to watch, please send us a tweet or an email. I'm very happy to do so. Excellent. Excellent. And I'll just say on Ghostlight, I quite like it. I think it does need a few tweaks. I think it, you know, that, that whole issue everyone has the first time they watch it, they don't really understand what happened. I get all of that. But I think there's a really good story lurking in there. Well, I will be finding out next month. All right. Now, you challenged me to watch something, but we'll get to that in a moment because I also watched something else this month that I want to talk about briefly, The Green Death. I hadn't watched this in full for ages and ages, maybe like you and uh, Ghostlight. It might be in the last 20 years that I'd seen it, uh, maybe only once. I'd forgotten how well this flows for a six-parter, and it's a Pertwee six-parter at that. So I was mightily blown away by it. When it comes to Pertwee stories, I often reach for the four-parters because the six- and seven-parters tend to just bore me. I didn't binge it, though. Um, I didn't feel like it really warranted that. But every time I started an episode, like once a day, I would be genuinely interested and enthralled and very happy to be watching it. And I thought, yeah, why haven't I watched this more in the last 20 years? This really is one of the goodies. It, it is a wonderful, wonderful story. It's got a message that naturally permeates the story it's got mm. characters that you you are you know you are rooting for it's got the lovely plot with joe falling in love with a younger version of the doctor yeah and it's got amazingly good cliffhangers yeah oh it's it's fantastic i didn't feel bored at all in it yeah it's got the bit with a maggot sneaking up on the back of joe it's got the exactly i am the computer <laughs> And it's got this that, that that final one, which I don't know why I love it, but I do that just just that can't depend on anyone, can you, Mister Yates? Yeah. And the credits crashing. I love I love the Green Death. Yeah, no, it's really good stuff. But the episode you challenged me to watch this month was Frontios. Yes. So, Dave, it's better than I remembered, but parts of it still don't ring true for me. This concept of the planet being under attack for 30 years seems absolutely ridiculous. Even the Doctor takes the piss out of that a bit, saying it seems like an awfully long time to you know, have an invasion that hasn't come yet. Um, even three years would seem a silly length of time to me. You know, For the level of fear that invasion is imminent, I'd be drawing a long bow at maybe six months of you know, asteroid bombardment. Also, the characters seem to swing wildly from trusting the Doctor to not trusting him to believing one thing than believing another thing. And I, I can see the story there, but I just can't grab it. I will say it's better than my previous viewings had led me to believe, um, particularly when I was younger, which I think coloured a lot of my viewings. Uh, and I'd agree that, you know, as many people say, if Davo had been getting this sort of stuff in season 20, he might have stayed on for another year or two. I can see that. I can see how this is better than the season 20 story. I can see how it's better than I previously thought, but it still didn't quite get me. 30 years of asteroid bombardment, Dave. It's silly. How did you find Davo himself in it? He's good. He's strong. Yeah. He, he He's very good, actually. Almost... Tom Bakerish, and uh, as I was thinking, he, he is so erratic in places, like even at the start where he's like, he's spring cleaning and oh, I've got a hat stand, I'm going to get rid of the hat stand. It's it's so erratic, it's almost like Bidmead is still writing the post-regenerative um, Davison. <laughs> I, I think you were right the first time, I think Bidmead is writing for Tom. Interesting, yeah. And and in, in the way that I think Robert Holmes was almost writing for Tom in Caves of Androzani, and Davison plays both of them really well. Yeah. It's time for our main topic, though. 
Gosh, have we got enough time? <laughs> We've been talking about everything else. <laughs> yeah, we don't normally like to have this as a news-dominated podcast, but there is so much that we have to talk about this month. Yeah, true. So regenerations, I guess we want to think about what makes a good regeneration or a regeneration story, Dave, and just give some general thoughts on each of the Doctor's regeneration stories. Yeah, that's right. So I've got an opening set of criteria if I could go, if you're happy for me to go first. Absolutely. And I say criteria, there's really only two. I'm looking for a story that feels like a full stop to an era, that summarizes an era and feels like that final farewell to a doctor. And I'm also looking for a regeneration that, if I can use the millennial language, gives me de-feels. That makes me feel something when when I'm watching it. If you do both of those, you get two big ticks from me. Okay, I've concentrated more on the regeneration scenes themselves and what leads up to them, so uh, I'll chime in where I can. No, that'll be good. That'll, that should be a good blend. Mm. And on that way, I think the 10th planet, which is obviously our first one, is going to be very interesting because it isn't a regeneration story. No. It's a story that at the end of it has a regeneration. The Doctor, there's no real foreshadowing of it at all. The story is not a summation of the Hartnell era. It's basically the templating of the Troughton era. Yeah, absolutely. And then suddenly, in the last five minutes, you get this this thing going on. How did you find the scene itself? Well, I think it's so simple and elegant and never seen before. It becomes the template for pretty much what comes in the future with most of the Doctors. You know, perhaps with more music or more emotion or maybe some more embellishments. But on the whole, the concept of the Doctor being um, injured or ill in some way and laying down on the floor of the TARDIS, particularly for the classic era. I mean, he does it standing up these days. Um, but for the <laughs> classic era, the Doctor laying down on the floor of the TARDIS and regenerating is how I think of, well, I think of Peter's regeneration and Collins and, you know, uh, John's, I guess, was sitting just outside the TARDIS. It was almost the same sort of thing, laying on the floor and Tom. Uh, it becomes this template in a, in a strange sort of way. and it's But it's just so simple and elegant, and the first time they've done it, I find it quite charming. I, I do as well, and I also have to compliment Hartnell's performance in it because he does start to build this sense of desperation in the Doctor that something really quite profound is about to happen, something very weird is about to happen, and he builds it up very, very nicely, and you do feel as though, you know, the guy's dying. You, you, you do feel as though this is a farewell moment, which, mm. given that there is no build-up, and in fact he's actually offset ill for um, one of the episodes leading up to it, is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I really like the Tenth Planet. Speaking of regenerations tacked on, <laughs> yes. War Games has an entire episode tacked onto a story that's just about the regeneration. It does. It does. Do you want to talk about the story in general first? Yeah, so I think the fact that it has 10 episodes means that you really can't be building or foreshadowing from part one. I no. think that would be, be too long. I mean, that would be the equivalent now of Capaldi starting to foreshadow, you know, from about halfway out of the season. <laughs> but you do get a sense in sort of parts eight and nine that this is just getting too big, that the Doctor's actually getting very stressed, and maybe we're not going to get out of this one in quite the same way. You you do start to get that feeling as a viewer. It's not a very natural Troughton story. In fact, it's quite an unusual story, but it does build up well, and then that cliffhanger where the Time Lords are chasing him, the attempt to escape from them, getting to what we now know is Gallifrey, and, and that 
Troughton's forlornness. I think mm. what really sums it up is that scene in part 10 where Jamie and Zoe are like, quick, Doctor, let's try and escape. And he's like, look, I know we're not getting away, but if it makes you feel better, I'll have a try just for you guys. Yeah. yeah. What about the scene, though, the actual moments? This could be heresy that I'm about to commit here, but I always thought this one was a bit silly. I know it introduces us to the idea that the Time Lords can choose their next incarnations. I've always thought the Doctor gets a random face because he's usually regenerating under duress and can't sort of sit back like an old Time Lord on Gallifrey and think about what he wants to be next and so on. Yeah. But, uh, just, you know, you can be like this guy or that guy and then eventually when he doesn't decide and they start spinning him around and he's saying, oh, you're making me giddy. Uh, I, I, I agree like with you. It. I agree with you, and I have since ever, and I have done ever since I saw it as a kid the first time on video. I, I, I do think it's a bit silly. The only reason I give it some points is for the moment beforehand, where he realizes that Jamie and Zoe will forget him. Oh hell yeah! Yes, that 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 should have been what the whole thing was like, and it's a shame it wasn't. But at least he gets that moment. Yeah, very true, and I do like that moment. But the actual, the actual. I was going to say the actual regeneration. We don't see the regeneration. The The closest we get to the regeneration where he's spinning off into the vortex, yeah, not good at all. And I have read that people say you can see his face starting to change. I just thought his face was getting out of focus as the you know, the, the ability of the camera to get that level of detail ceased. Yeah, they, they didn't have the technology to do that sort of thing, folks, at that time. In contrast... Mm. I don't think that Planet of the Spiders is the best story to feature a regeneration. However, I think it is the best regeneration story because it is actually written as a genuine celebration of the era. They try to encapsulate all the themes and all the tropes of the Pertwee era into one. Yes, the car chase is indulgent, but it is part of the Pertwee era. Mm. The Buddhist themes... The environmental themes, the idea of, you know, he can start to, he's starting to control the TARDIS and that's starting to work. The idea of something, you know, a big spider is very pertwee, but also down to the fact that Barry Letts has co-written this, Barry Letts has produced this, Barry Letts has directed this. So it is very much Barry Letts giving his farewell to an era as well, which is basically the entire Pertwee era. And they've brought back the cast. They've got Dalius from the Time Monster. They've got Boss from the Green Death. They've got links from the Time Warrior. You know, just almost all of these cast members as someone who's worked with Pertwee often in an important role across his era, coming back to say goodbye to him. Yeah. So I think it is a wonderful celebration of the era, and I love Planet of the Spiders for it. And then when you get to the scene, oh, my God, Rob, take us to the scene. Well, Dave, you say this is one of your best regeneration stories, if not the best. I've written here, I think this is one of the best acted regenerations. You have this pompous doctor admitting he had to face his fear and that it's kicked seven shades of hell out of him and that he's lost. You know, this this admission of defeat, just as he, in quotation marks, dies, I think it's very good. I love it. It, it is wonderful. It still evokes, you know, a lump in the throat now. And and the way it's done, Pertwee lying there with the Brigadier and Sarah there, and, and all through his era, that line, while there's life, there's hope, Mm. has been this real beacon of hope for us, you know. While there's life, there's hope, and suddenly there he is, and it's, there is dying words. While there's life, there's trails yeah. away. Yeah. You know, that, that's, it's a wonderful callback to that catchphrase, flipped around to make it just so wonderful and emotional. 
it's just a shame that the video effect is so so dull. But <laughs> who cares? It's it's a lovely, wonderful moment. Yeah, as I say, I think it's one of the best acted regenerations. When we get to Capaldi, I'm I'm going to say this now. Mm-hmm. I said at the time that my favourite moment from the last series of New Who was Capaldi's. I'd wish I'd hope there'd be stars line. Yes, and and that's what I think of when I think of Planet of the Spiders, and that's what I would love. Capaldi's farewell to be something like that moment I got some thoughts on that but we'll get to them later we'll get to them later mm. <laughs> Legopolis Dave Legopolis is not in itself a summary of the Tom Baker era in fact the Tom Baker era kind of finished a year ago we haven't got the usual companions we've got Davison's companions coming in and just sort of taking over the show around him mm. And Legopolis is certainly not typical of the Tom Baker era at all. But that whole season builds towards the end of the Tom Baker Doctor. You know, this guy who just, even today, towers above Doctor Who. Tom Baker remains for generations, for millions of people, the Doctor. Mm. He'd been there for so long, he was iconic. And there is this sense of build-up and of decay as season 18 goes on. He looks like an older man in state of decay. He is actually made into an older man in the leisure hive. You know, even down to the little subtle things, like at the end of Keeper of Traken, the grandfather clock is set to four minutes to midnight, saying mm. there's only four episodes of Tom left. Yeah, it's clever. And then that sense of doom, the cloister bell, the brooding, the, the, the destruction of you know, massive parts of the universe. And then he, he, you know, he dies saving the universe. You know, if you're going to kill Tom, he's got to go out saving the universe. Oh, absolutely. This isn't small-time stuff saving one person. Yeah. He, he has to go this way. And, and you know, people are probably disappointed that we haven't mentioned the funereal uh, air about this episode, so let's mention that just briefly. It does have a very funereal air about it. I, when I was a kid, and even as an adult, I loved the scenes where he's looking at the watcher standing across the motorway. You know, that seems so basic to some people, I guess. But to me, I always like how he's sort of looking in the distance across the motorway at this guy in the field. And it's like, oh, what's going on? You know, there was something about that even. Did, did you think it was Peter Davison under there? Well, afterwards, I think I did. You know, and, and people would certainly say that. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's because it was a, a lighter coloured and you maybe think it's a blonde person underneath all that makeup or something. It certainly looks like the halfway point. It when does. he's regenerating, yeah, um, it really Davo does. has that makeup on. I think that might, you know, be what tips people off that it could be Davo. Of course, it's not. He was only there for the final scene. But yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. But the regeneration itself, I always think of the music that goes with this, yeah. particularly as that camera. They've got it up really high. I don't think they've got it on a cherry picker because we don't have any sort of castro valve as it comes down. <laughs> but. But as the camera comes down from up high and we've got that plummeting, you know, music going with the with the, the the sense that we're moving down towards the doctor. That's that's what I remember most about the regeneration and also the music as he turns into Peter Davison, the more sort of hopeful music like here's his new life. You know, he's a new guy again, you know, uh, that's what I think of as that. Also, it's got the line. I mean, for new who. There's the famous line, I don't want to go, you know, from Tennant, and people quote that a lot. But I think for classic Who fans, it's the end, but the moment's being prepared for is probably the most famous regeneration line, and it's a good one. 
It, it is. I think it is the one that is most quoted. It is. It is a wonderful, wonderful line. It's a wonderful, wonderful moment. I don't think there's much more you can say. I, I, I think that whilst Planet of the Spiders is the best regeneration story, I think Legopolis is the best regeneration scene. Yeah, well, for me, as as a scene, it would be out of Planet of the Spiders and, and this, I think. Yeah. Which brings us to Davo. Brings us to Davo. <sighs> Caves is an interesting one because it doesn't feel like the rest of the Davison era, but he is so good in it. Mm. And it feels like a triumphant ending for him. In an era that, you know, we spoke about last time, has got its strengths and its weaknesses. It is a triumphant final note, but it is a desperate doctor all the way through it. And he's effectively killed, like in effect, about five minutes into part one. From the moment he steps in that Spectrox nest, he's toast. Yeah. So it is about him dealing with his impending death for three and a half episodes and, and what that means and his guilt that he's led Perry into sharing his death yeah yeah oh look it's fantastic you know and it's so sad to see him in this situation because he's my davo dave <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but isn't he so heroic i mean we'll put aside what i said on the davo episode which is you know why didn't they just take a slug of the bat's milk and then bolt for the tardis uh instead of him carrying her all that way and then spilling it uh putting that aside i think that this is just one of the great regenerations and that's one of the reasons this story is so loved the dashing young doctor is finally really, really dashing. <laughs> you yeah. Know, we have this sense that he's a dashing kind of guy, but he, he didn't really show it all that often. And in this one, oh my God, it's awesome. And, and interestingly enough, and I didn't realise this until very recently, that moment in, I think it's late part three, early part four, where you start to see the regen effect and he, he sort of blinks his eyes and it goes. I'd always thought that was a sort of a space travel effect that just happened to be the same as the regeneration. But, but no, the intention was that's the regeneration starting and he's mm. going, no, no, I can't do this yet. I've got to save Perry. And he's pushing the regeneration away like he's he's on the edge of death then. Yeah. So not just a new who thing, folks. He has pushed it off in the past. Mm, mm. And it's also the first time they really go big on those special effects. It's not just the rollback and mix or in the case of Legopolis, rollback and mix with a couple of interim shots. It, it, it is a full, you know, computer effect moment with that Beatles-esque, um, Day in the Life-esque uh, crescendo of music. Does it yeah. does it work for you? Oh, yeah, it, it did as a kid and it does now. That visual, it's just great. Sadly, his last words aren't as memorable as Tom's being... <laughs> Adric? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that is sad, but it's a good thing to know for trivia, folks. That, that comes up a lot in trivia. Speaking of terrible last words, mm-hmm. colon. <laughs> carrot juice, carrot, carrot juice. juice, carrot juice. <laughs> Look, needless to say, Colin didn't get a regeneration scene. No. He certainly didn't get a cause of regeneration other than, according to the novel, tumultuous buffeting. <laughs> or according to Big Finish, a whole epic saga of stories. Oh, I, I, I haven't heard that. Mm. Look, Colin made exactly the right call for the time. You, you can't sit there and say, I need to refuse all work for the next six months because for one week in that, you're going to ask me at some point, I don't know when, to come and film a regeneration scene. It doesn't work though, does it? Well, this is interesting because I saw this first at a uh, Australasian Doctor Who fan club party at Sydney Uni. 
Now, we would watch these sitting in a big lecture theatre where there were TVs suspended from the ceiling, like, you know, old-fashioned TVs uh, hanging here and there around the room. So you had to sit sort of near one, and it still wasn't that big a screen to be watching it on. I saw it there first probably... Uh, well, it would be 30 years ago. Well, it would be 30 years ago, that's right. And it would, be, it would have been a few months after it aired in the UK, something along those lines. And in that room, in that setup, and being excited to see it, I thought they'd done it really, really well, given the circumstances. Like, I knew that Sylvester was playing the Sixth Doctor and, you know, that this would happen as it did. But to me, it looked really good. But it was only later when I saw it on a bigger TV, you know, sitting right up in front of the TV, and I saw it was a lot more flawed. Like, you could see sort of Sylvester's hair under the wig. You could see that it was a wig. You could see that it was Sylvester. You know, and I thought, this isn't quite so good. And, of course, the concept that he'd just fallen off his exercise bike and hit his head on the console (laughs) or something was just bloody stupid. So, look, initially, I thought this was actually very clever, and it was my first regeneration as a fan not just as a viewer, which I think is important for me as well. Um, it was the first one I'd seen in that sort of setting amongst other fans and, you know, having read about it leading up to it in Doctor Who magazine and things like that. So it, it holds a special sort of place for me. I don't think it's very good at all, though. And my view certainly did change between when I first saw it and when I later saw it, you know, in better circumstances. It's interesting. I saw it for the first time in very similar circumstances. And maybe Melbourne fans are naturally more cynical than Sydney fans. I don't think it's helped by the fact that the line immediately before the regeneration is the infamous leave the girl, it's the man I want. Because that just gets the audience laughing. And then you get this really shunkly done regeneration. So you're already in a, okay, this is going to be a bit silly. And oh my God, look at that wig. <laughs> Which of the Marx Brothers, is it Chico or Harpo? Harpo, or? I think. Harpo. Yeah. Gosh, he looks like Harpo Marx. It does. It's worth noting, though, that if you believe the Virgin New Adventures, the Sixth Doctor actually drove the TARDIS into the Rani's beam and allowed himself to be killed because the universe needed the seventh doctor to be there to be its champion and take over at that point i just find that weird yeah it's an interesting concept isn't it it uh, it's a concept it's a very new adventures concept (laughs) i'll go with concept (laughs) okay speaking of i need four new adventures to finish the set oh well that's exciting Mm. anyway back to regenerations (laughs) so because of what happened in Time and the Rani. Mm. There was no way McCoy wasn't going to do a regen, and there's no way anybody making the telly movie in the 90s would not have had the regen. Like, we'd had nine years of fandom wisdom saying that it was absolutely terrible that Colin didn't regenerate into McCoy on screen. So it had to be done. Mm. Now, when we get to Rose, we'll talk about why that was a mistake, but but you, you would agree, Rob, there's no way fandom wouldn't have accepted anything other than an on-screen regeneration for the telly movie. Oh, absolutely. Casting my mind back to that era, it absolutely had to happen. It would be just disastrous if it didn't. And yet the irony is, I think it would have been better if Colin came back for his and Sylve didn't come back for his. Yeah, yeah, because this attempt to launch the new series, as it was meant to be, it turned out to only be a telly movie, but it was meant to be the pilot for a new series, struggles because you start off with your star as Sylvester McCoy. He gets killed about five minutes in. He then gets to sort of gurn on a table during an operation 20 minutes in. He's then dead for another 10 minutes. And it's sort of half an hour before you see him again. It's another 15 minutes 
before McGann actually gets anything to do other than go, who, um, oi, <laughs> and walk around in a sheet. He gets about 20 minutes of dialogue, and then he just stands in there in that clockwork orange machine going, Grace, for about yep. 10 minutes. It, it, it's a woeful start for him. Uh, you know, and it's, it's not helped by the fact that the first thing we see is this: there's a police box traveling through space. Then we see this guy in a room. Is that inside the police box? We don't know. But the regeneration, I guess what I'm saying, the regeneration hampers the telly movie. It allows it to not start until it's almost half over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's got all the all that intro, as you're mentioning, like he's mentioning Scaro and Daleks and the Master, and he's doing this and that, and people will be thinking, what the hell? But, yes, just concentrating on the regeneration. At the time, I'm going to put my, my neck on the line here and say I really liked it because I like seeing Silv again. It had been so long since I'd seen Silv, and he was finally in a good costume, and the TARDIS finally looked really good and gothic. And I did actually like all of that, but now that I look at it, I think, yes, we could have done without Silv in it. The gurning looks silly. The Doctor basically as Christ in his shroud being resurrected is so heavy-handed. It's like, please, this is... This is bloody horrible. And I really like McGann as a doctor. I, I love him, but this is just horrible. Yeah, I agree with you, actually. Again, I was very excited as a fan to see McCoy doing all that and part of the role and all the rest. That was really, really good. But in, in hindsight, it was a mistake. But I do love the irony that this doctor, this arch manipulator who leaves himself notes in Battlefield and he sets up the Daleks and the Cybermen to wipe them out. And what takes him out is not something big or cosmic or a battle of wits or what, you know, he, he finally belts off too much. It's, he just sort of turns the wrong way out of the TARDIS and gets shot by a random passerby. Yeah. Well, that was something he couldn't account for. Yeah. There was a great irony in, in that, that it was just this accident. Mm. Yeah. No, no, that, that is good. But uh, yeah, I, I can't say too many good things about this one. Now, moving on from that, we've got a couple of regenerations that don't really have eras behind them, Dave. No, well, I guess that's because they lead into and out of a doctor who doesn't have a number and really was only in one story. And in fact, McGann was only in one story. Exactly. So first up, we have McGann regenerating into John Hurt in The Night of the Doctor 2013, just before the 50th anniversary episode dropped. Dave, did you like this little special? Oh, look, it was nice to see McGann again. I can't really go beyond that. I'm sorry. It, it was just a nice little thing. The concept, uh, I guess, gets teased out a lot here that particularly using the Sisterhood of Khan, a Time Lord can, you know, choose what they want to be in their next regeneration. It drops pretty heavily the fact that he can be a woman as well. I think there's a bit of um, precursoring going on there. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I will be honest, I haven't watched this probably since 2013. All right, well, that's fair. I think for a lot of people out there, though, although McGann doesn't really have an era on television, at least, it gave them a taste of what could have been, and I think many people thought he might have done really well in the 50th itself. Oh, look, I certainly agree he would have done well in the 50th. I think at the end of the day, the McGann regeneration will have more resonance if you're someone who has been a follower of his in the books or in the audios. Uh, as you say, there is then an era to sum up. If really you're someone like me who all you've ever seen him in is the telly movie, and that was, you know, over 20 years ago now. Mm. It, it was nice, but I'm sorry, it didn't resonate. Yeah, and certainly Moffat was canny enough to drop in him uh, thanking a number of his companions who are audio companions. So certainly some big Finnish listeners out there, you know, hit the roof and said, woohoo, when that happened. Yeah. 
Moving on, of course, we have at the end of the 50th uh, anniversary episode, John Hurt turns into... Well, he seems to turn into Eccleston. We assume it's Eccleston. I, maybe they couldn't use his face for copyright reasons or something because he just doesn't quite get there. Yeah, and you know, the, the Doctor's died of many things over the course of things, you know, falling from the radio telescope, Spectrox toxemia, massive radiation poisoning. I am pretty sure the Hurt Doctor dies from a severe case of plot convenience. Well, you may say that, Dave. I think it's more like the Hartnell regeneration insofar as his body is worn out because when we see McGann turn into Hurt, it's a very, very young Hurt. It's it's a Hurt who could pop up in I, Claudius, for example. It's that kind of Hurt. So for him to have got to the stage of being a very old man for a Time Lord, I think that means he's lived an awfully long time. But it was kind of a convenience that he got into his TARDIS and did it straight away. Oh, I thought he just spent a few days as that Doctor. I, I thought the incarnation lasted like... Weeks, not millennia. Oh, hell no. No, when in... Well, this this is why you need to rewatch Night of the Doctor. When he regenerates and we see him reflected in the golden chalice or whatever he's reflected in, he is a very young John Hurt. He's got thick, dark hair and no beard. And clearly he goes from that to being the old man. So he's been around for an awfully long time fighting this time war. That's what they're trying to portray there, I think. Well, that certainly went over my head. And even that being the case... I'm I'm sorry, I thought him just going, oh, episode's ending, better regenerate now. I, I thought that was a bit, bit, bit lame. It was a bit convenient. What about us not seeing Eccleston's face? Uh, look, again, I didn't really expect to. I think that, as you said, it, it is a reflection of the, the issues of using an actor's image if he doesn't want to be there. So, no, I, I was fine with that. And, and let's face it, of all the things that get ex- me excited about Day of the Doctor... Uh, John Hurt's, you know, one-hour doctor regenerating was not a big deal for me. It's it's way down the list of cool things in that, that that story. Fair enough, fair enough. Which takes us to the parting of the ways. Oh, yes. Now, please, talk about the episode, because I'm itching to talk about the regen. I think that this is a wonderful regeneration story, and I, I think so far it's the best of the new series, because mm-hmm. it does summarise and put a lovely full stop at the end of the Eccleston era. The Eccleston era has a very clear through line of the war-damaged Doctor learning to find its place in the universe again. In particular, a character that was wounded because he made the decision that he needed to sacrifice his world to beat the Daleks now has realised that it was perhaps not the right thing to do and he doesn't sacrifice Earth to beat the Daleks again. He says, I'm not going to make that choice again. So you get to see his character come a whole 180 degrees. He's surrounded by not just Rose, but Mickey's been a part of the story. Captain Jack's been a part of the story. Rose's mum has been a part of the story. So again, characters from his era have come back. We're back on the station. And so there is this wonderful summing up of an era. It grows to a crescendo. The Daleks help to build the tension. There are goodbye scenes. I think that this is a wonderful build-up and end of an era. Couldn't agree more. I adored this episode. I adore both the episodes. And as we get towards the end, Eccleston's, you know, have a good life speech to Rose. I watched that again just recently. I just picked that up on YouTube and just watched that scene. And I cried. It is really, really fantastic stuff. 
I love that she went back for him. I always chuckle at Jack's really over-the-top heroics, like, last man standing, doctor! <laughs> <laughs> you know, is, he's, is, is he firing machine guns in both hands? <laughs> you know, like some sort of 80s action hero. Yeah, yeah. As he's saying, last man standing! You know, but then you have this regeneration... And his explanation to Rose, she's playing the audience surrogate just like a good companion should. He explains to Rose what's about to happen because a lot of the audience wouldn't have seen a regeneration before. He's saying, yeah, I might come out with two heads, might have no head, you know, it's a bit dodgy. Oh, God, I love this, Dave. And yes, it is the best of the New Who regeneration so far. And there's something that really resonates in the way that he explains it to Rose because it sounds very similar to the way that we all have death first described to us by our parents. Mm. That, that sort of euphemistic well he's going somewhere else and you won't be seeing him again and you know it's not an exact match but it feels like that sort of conversation yeah yeah you're right particularly you mentioned before new series people like to quote the i don't want to go line for me and i think for a lot of my friends eccleston's line is is the one the you were fantastic you were absolutely fantastic and you know what so was I. And I remember yeah. at that moment as a, as a viewer just thinking, wow, you've taken his catchphrase and he's, he, he, you've turned it back, which is witty. You've implied in that that he's now realised that, yeah, he is fantastic and he's learned to, to love and respect himself again and that's special. And then he goes. And we've got to note that, you know, after he says, and, and so was I, almost straight away we have the and he's exploding which he had never done before. He'd never regenerated standing up. He'd never exploded into flames. And as old school viewers, you know, I I won't speak for you here, but at least for me, I was like, Jesus Christ, what's happening? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I was was waiting for him to fall down on the ground and do a rollback and mix. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this was, oh, this was big stuff. Yeah, big, big stuff. I I, I really love the Eccleston era, and yeah, it's a wonderful full stop to it. I think it's... I do think it's the best of the new series. I'll put that out there quite happily. Maybe to be topped in a month's time. Well, I'd like to think it will, you know, just to so I'm thinking positively about this next episode, but I'm not sure. <laughs> David Tennant. Yes. <sighs> There's a lot of sighing there, Dave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'm saying anything original mm-hmm. if I say that it was a missed opportunity to not have him regenerate. At the end of uh, Stolen Earth. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the Stolen Earth two-parter is the perfect regeneration story. It does pull together all the elements of that era, it, whether it's Captain Jack, Sarah Jane, all the companions, um, you know, the references to Mr. Copper, for example, or um, who's the ex-Prime Minister? Um, 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 Harriet Jones. Yeah, Harriet Jones coming back for a little cameo, all of that sort of stuff. I think is you know is a wonderful it's a Planet of the Spiders esque celebration of an era, and, and it is is even more reflective of that because just as that was Barry Letts and Terence Dix saying goodbye, this is Russell T Davies uh, saying goodbye. And I'll just say, a lot of people like it or love it, and and yet more people have it as a guilty pleasure. You know, they they don't necessarily love it, but oh, it's kind of a guilty pleasure to watch. Look, that scene where they're dragging the Earth back with all of the Murray Gold music and they're all flying the TARDIS, it is the epitome of fan wank, but it is mm. wonderful. Oh, yeah. Look, on one level, all the companions are there, which is lovely. On another level, a really geeky level, it's like, oh, look, the TARDIS is being flown how it's meant to be flown with, you know, one or two people at each of the sections of the console. 
Yeah, it, it is schmaltzy, but it is great. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not Tenant's regeneration story. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> and and his regeneration story is kind of terrible. It's kind of all over the place. It's kind of silly. The master isn't as good as he previously was. You've suddenly got Rasslin back for no apparent reason. Yeah, I just I just didn't care by then. It really goes for it, like turning everyone on Earth into the master, having those scenes where Obama is now the master, and. Uh, you can see it's just really, really trying to go for it. But I can't understand how the Doctor survives a fall in that second episode far, far higher than he falls in Legopolis, yet he survives that. It's like, how did you survive that? You just fell onto a marble floor from like several miles high. Well, that's right. I remember watching that and thinking, oh, that's it. He's about to go. Bring bring on the fireworks. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, makes sense. He's just jumped off, off, a, off a spaceship, fallen through them, fallen through the glass, shattered. Here comes the regeneration. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, It's quite okay. Oh, no. The world tour then that he does after getting irradiated to save Wolf, you know, and tours around the world visiting all the companions, which I've got to say, I watched my first Sarah Jane adventures the other day. I watched The Death of the Docker. And in that, he sort of hints that he had went around and seen all the the companions, you know. So what we saw wasn't, wasn't even all of it. And now I'm trying to remember whether it was a flashback to Tennant saying that or whether Smithy was saying that. Might have been Smithy. Might have been Smithy to Joe Grant. Okay. She, she was saying, why didn't you come back and, and look in on me? And he, he said he couldn't find her because when he was dying in his last life, he went around and, and looked in on, on everyone. So there, there's this hint, and of course that's written by RTD. I guess RTD believes in it, that he went around and saw everyone and we just didn't have time to see it all in the episode. Yeah, look, the, the, the goodbye tour desperately wants to be loved and there's a part of me that wants to love it but it, it is so drawn out it, it is a little bit problematic in that well these are the only two black people that i've hung out with so naturally you're going to get married and oh look <laughs> these are the two gay people i've hung out with so you're going to get married because you know you're both gay you're going to love each other you're both black <laughs> you're going to be a pair <laughs> it, th- that is a bit unfortunate i don't think it's intentional but it is there yeah. but but to me a regeneration works because it mirrors death. Yeah. And death is not, well, I'll just go and have a bit of a goodbye tour. It's it's uncontrolled and it's it's unstoppable. And mm. so this idea of, well, look, I'll, I'll die when it's convenient. And by the end of it, I'm just going, oh, for God's sake, hurry up. <laughs> and it's a great shame because it could have been better. I agree with all of that. But just on that note that, you know, you can't hold death back, there is a moment where he's regenerating. The, the TARDIS is blowing up around him. I mean, that's a bit over the top. But there's this moment where he gets this really fierce look of concentration on his face, and it's like he's going to use his sheer force of will to to stop it and to, to beat it down, you know, because you sort of start to see him regenerate, then his face sort of comes back into focus like he's mm. fighting it. I actually really like that moment because I think it's realistic for how this character was. Like, he loved being him. He loved having that hair gel. He loved his long coat. You know, yeah. <laughs> he was really he was really into himself. And he didn't want to go. And he was going to fight it. And I actually appreciated that bit, even if what I was seeing around it I wasn't as enamored with. But whenever I see it, I always watch for that little bit. And that's the, that's the bit I like in that regeneration. And this is the, the real shame. If you took that bit and put it at the end of Stolen Earth, you would have a really good moment after a really wonderful season conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, you would. RTD peaked too early. Yeah, so let me flag now a fear for the end of the conversation. 
There is another Doctor who had a wonderful end of a season that was perfectly mm-hmm. set up for regeneration. Mm-hmm. And he's coming back for a Christmas special. Yes. <laughs> just, put, just just park that one, Rob. Okie dokie. Which brings us to Smithy, Time of the Doctor. What did you think of this one? I think it's just horrible. <laughs> Dave, <sighs> it's, it's not only a horrible story, but that scene with the regeneration energy and him shouting love from Gallifrey boys and firing off his hands into space. <laughs> oh, Jesus. No, thank you. Okay, I'll give you my view. I think that if you're somebody who loves the Matt Smith era, you will love this episode because it is a perfect summation of everything in the Matt Smith era. Now, I consider the Matt Smith era to be my least favourite era of the series. So to me, it is a perfect summation of everything I don't like about the Matt Smith era. (laughs) Yes. But I fully concede and I fully admit, if you loved those things about it, this would be a perfect regeneration. This would be for you what Planet of the Spiders was for me or what Party of the Ways was for me. Because it does go through all the imagery and the ideas and the concepts and the tropes and the cheats and the conceits of the Matt Smith era. I think it is a wonderful summation of his era. I just don't like that era. Mm. Look, that's fair. And I will say that it saved somewhat for me with his speech where he talks about, you know, we're all different people throughout our lives. And I guess people, well, people who have lived a bit, maybe not 15-year-olds, um, can, can look at that and think, yeah, like I have been different people throughout my life. And, you know, and, and, and there's some nice lines there. And, of course, Amy walks in in slow motion. I don't even like Amy, and I kind of like that moment, especially when he sees the flash of young Amy running around the TARDIS playing and then older Amy comes down the stairs. Poor Clara gets usurped there for something awful, like she's the current companion. But it's all about Amy at that moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a nice moment. I, I know fans or some fans don't like it. I think it actually is a very nice emotional moment. It does help to sum up his entire era. And although I don't much like Amy, I like Clara even less, so I don't mind her being usurped. <laughs> yeah. And look, and another thing I've jotted down that I like, I like when his bow tie hits the floor. Yeah. You know, I, I can't, in my head it happens in slow motion, but I don't know whether that's just me remembering it in slow motion or whether it is actually in slow motion. But just dropping that on the floor, the symbolism of that, I I quite like that. It's it's so much better than, you know, Love from Gallifrey Boys and all that sort of stuff when I was just watching that mouth agape and not for good reasons. Yeah, I, I was too. And it's got the conceit of the whole new set of regenerations, which... Look, it wasn't necessary at that stage. He was only the 11th Doctor. There were two more to go, I thought. Uh, and I think a lot of people thought, but Moffat kind of said, oh, well, no, we're going to include these other ones. So, no. Yeah. And, you know, that, that that's, a, that's a debate for another time. Yes. Uh, as I say, I think it is a very good summation of the Matt Smith era. The Matt Smith era, I think, is a very divisive era. Maybe its reputation will settle as it gets a little bit further in the memory, but... Because it was a divisive era in terms of fan opinion, I think a summation of the era is equally divisive. Yeah, I think that's that's very, very fair. And even for me, there are parts of the Matt Smith era I like, and there are things the Matt Smith Doctor does that I really, really like. But there's also the complete opposite as well in every single episode. Stuff I just, I'm, I'm just like, what the hell is this? I don't, ugh, yuck. So yes, the regeneration falls into two halves for me, just like his era. You know, one half is the love from Gallifrey. The other half is his speech and the bow tie hitting the floor. It sums it up for me as well. Perfectly. Yeah, very, very fair. So what does this mean 
for Peter Capaldi in barely a month's time. Well, I think this is the first time we can say the Doctor's fatal injury or whatever is going to bump him off has happened in a separate story. When we look at all these other stories, what has killed him has happened in that story. You know, whether it's old age and time of the Doctor or the radiation in um, End of Time and so on. So he's already had his finale in a sense. And I guess this is something you were talking about a moment ago. Maybe we can drill down a bit on that now. That he has already had his finale. He has already had his big moment. He has already had, you know, I thought there'd be stars. Uh, What could that mean for this episode? I think it means that there is an inherent risk in what they're doing. I understand the rationale for having a, a Christmas episode as they are introducing Whitaker at the end of it. I understand the rationale. But there will always be a risk that just like we sit there with Tennant and go, he outstayed his welcome, there was a perfect moment for him to go at the end of Stolen Earth, and he didn't take it, will we always be sitting there going, I wish they'd had the regeneration at that moment where clearly I think it was meant to be. Mm. It could well be that what happens in the Christmas episode tops that. And that would be wonderful. And I hope that that is what happens. I think it is always tough to balance a regeneration story, which is naturally funereal and doom-laden and introspective, with a Christmas episode, which are usually a bit funny, a bit out of character, a bit jaunty. That That is always a bit of a risk. Yes, and we've already seen and we've already talked about in this episode Moffat's comedy writing coming through. Are we thinking that maybe it's just in that scene or in a few scenes? Are we thinking it might permeate the whole episode because it is Christmas and it is going to be fun and Capaldi's going to be getting around with this older guy who thinks he's the old one because he is the old one. He is older than the the Hartnell Doctor, but the Hartnell Doctor looks physically older, etc. Oh, hilarity ensues. Does that undercut the fact that Capaldi is... He is actually going this time, even though it feels like he's already gone. Are we going to see the Hartner regeneration? I can see the desire for them to recreate it, but I don't want them to. Is that bad? No, sorry. Yes, it is probably bad. Uh, <laughs> is Capaldi's regeneration undercut if it's one of two in the episode? Well, you'd think so. Or, or flipped on its head, the other side of the coin is the introduction of Jodie Whittaker, you know, somewhat diminished because we're all saying, oh, look, we've seen the first Doctor regenerate. Yeah, I, I don't know. Look, I suspect that it won't be. I suspect that our minds are big enough and capable enough of uh, do, you know, doing both and not letting the one diminish the other. But it is a risk. I guess what we're saying here is we're not sitting here going, this regeneration is doomed to failure. No. We're sitting here going, there are some very big risks that are involved in this regeneration. What I would like to see from the Christmas episode is a summation of the Capaldi era that builds naturally to an emotional regeneration. Mm. I suspect we won't get the first part because we just had that. That's what More Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls was about. It was, again, about all these things from his era surrounding him, putting full stops at the end of them. It did it brilliantly. Like, like, you know, when, when I'm sitting there going, gee, I feel really sorry for Missy. What a great exit. They've mm. done something really right. Mm. So I, I think it is going to be a shame that his regeneration wasn't there. I think we've talked about what makes a good one, and I think it's going to be very hard to do that, but maybe we're going to be surprised. You know, Moffat has pulled some tricks out of the, out of the fireplace in the past. When I was completely at my lowest ebb with Doctor Who, he pulled Day of the Doctor out, and it was brilliant. Yeah. 
So he can do that again. And, you know, Moffat with nothing to lose, going around one last time, that could be something pretty special. Yeah, look, it, it, it could be. Just going back to will we see the first Doctor regenerate, I'd, I'd be happy if they took it up to he goes back to the TARDIS, he says he's wearing a bit thin, we go for a close-up on the hand, even if they put a little bit of the modern regeneration energy flowing around Hartnell's hand, I could live with that. But then the camera cuts. Maybe it cuts to Capaldi's hand and the camera zooms out from there and Capaldi's got the same thing going on. Then we go into the Capaldi regeneration. So we don't actually see the first Doctor regenerate, but we know they're about to do it sort of in a synchronous sort of way. You know, I could live with that. Yeah, I I could as well. Let me say, my concern about seeing the Hartnell regeneration is only about it undercutting Capaldi. I do not think that it will undercut the 10th planet at all. My love for Hartnell and my favouritism of Hartnell and my love of the 10th planet is not going to be affected by what happens at Christmas. I will always love the 10th planet. I will always love that moment. I, I, it, 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 is, it is unimpeachable. It can't be damaged by anything that is done. And any fan that says, oh, well, he's ruined the Hartner regeneration. No, the Hartner regeneration is there. It exists. It doesn't get changed by something else. I guess my biggest fear for it is that it can become very fan wank from the point of view that, you know, Capaldi doesn't want to regenerate. He's already said that quite clearly in the previous episode that I'm sick of regenerating. I don't want to do it anymore. Um, the Hartnell Doctor's clearly a bit apprehensive about it being his first, and they're going to help each other out. You know, to me, this is so fan wank. Like, let's go back to the first Doctor with our current Doctor and let's have them help each other, and it will be lovely. You know, do you feel that way that there's there's a strong element of fan wank to that? It's almost like a bad story in a fanzine from like 1988 or something. It is once again a risk. I'm not going to prejudge it as anything more than a risk. Mm, yeah, it's it's the risk of fan wank. You yeah. know, I'm certainly not saying it is because I haven't seen it. Christmas episodes are the one time a year where you can get away with that. Yes. But it's such a shame, and this is obviously the same with the Smithy episode as well, that Smithy had to go on a Christmas episode, so he was in the town of Christmas and he'd stayed there for hundreds of years to help the children. And, oh, no, you know, <laughs> you ruin these doctors' last stories by having to shovel in some schmaltz for the season. I don't like that. Yeah, I've never understood why, just because the episode is screened on Christmas Day, it has to reference Christmas. If you look at the two goodies Christmas specials, neither of them actually mention Christmas at all. Now, okay, that was a deliberate choice on their part so that they could be repeated at any time and not just at Christmas. <laughs> Canny. But, but they still do that. Yeah, look, I, I know. I know it's uh, not not having many Christmas shows down here, Dave. Like it might surprise people overseas to know that most of our big shows don't do Christmas episodes because you know t TV shows are off the air for Christmas. Yeah, it's um, the middle of summer. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Blake did a story. The last episode of the Doctor Blake mysteries, um, they were celebrating Christmas, but that aired in like late. October or early November or something like that. You know, it wasn't really promoted as a Christmas episode. That's about the closest we get. Yeah, absolutely right. So in summary for me, Dave, I'm I'm open to what happens in the Capaldi episode, but I do have some trepidation. Look, I agree with you, and I think what we're really saying out of all this is if that you want to look at how to do a regeneration, look at spiders, look at Legopolis, look at parting of the ways. Absolutely. It can be done well. But after this has all happened, we have got that footage of Capaldi regenerating into Whitaker. I really hope somebody does re-edit The Doctor Falls to have him fall down, 
say I thought there'll be stars and then cut to the regeneration. Someone please do that for me. <laughs> now, to wrap up, Dave, we've got some shows to talk about that we've been watching, but we do have an email about our Babylon 5 episode. Uh, yes, so we're going to take turns to read this out because it's got a few points in here and it's from Christopher Bryant. So, Hello, Christopher. Yeah, hello, Christopher. Thank you for writing in. He writes, Dear Babylon 5 Show. <laughs> we were that good. <laughs> I really enjoyed your latest episode and great to hear you're doing Blake 7 next. Soon you must run out of shows that I have loved. I have a small bone to pick, which is that I don't feel the first season of Babylon 5 or any of Babylon 5 needs to be introduced with any embarrassment. People always seem to be apologetic, citing Sinclair's acting or unconvincing sets. Sorry, no, I don't see any of that. Well, that's interesting. Before I pick up on the next part of the email, I'll say that's really good if, if you don't see it personally. I can look past it myself. The reason I'm being apologetic, though, is because others can't look past it. I think that's probably the important thing to say. You know, I can look at it and completely immerse and think, yes, that's that's his office. It looks like an Ikea, you know, warehouse, but fine, it's good. But to others, I kind of feel the need to say, yes, you might experience it like this, but just go with the story. That's why I'm apologetic, I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, it goes on. You can save this bit in a Peter Jurassic voice if you like. Oh, should I try it, Dave? Go on. <laughs> I was there at the beginning. <laughs> I've turned into Borat already. I'll <laughs> stop. stop. Um, I watched this on first transmission and absolutely loved it. Yes, it gets better in the second season and better again in the third, but there are loads of great moments and great episodes in the first season, such as the arrival of Bester, the first sighting of one of the first ones, the arrival of the shadows. I would say that no enjoyment of the series is complete without enjoying the episode signs and portents. It's the beginning of so much and it introduces Mr. Morden. All of that is very, very true. Christopher goes on to say, I'm not sure how the episode you picked qualify as guilty pleasures. In fact, Zaha Doom is one of the very best episodes ever. I was thinking that there were no episodes of Babylon 5 which I would count as guilty pleasures until I remembered River of Souls. That's the movie with Martin Sheen as a soul hunter and Lieutenant Corwin with a baseball hat that tells you it loves you. <laughs> as for my favourite episode, it's always been the same one, and I don't think you mentioned it. In fact, hardly anyone ever does. It's from the middle of Season 3, and it's Interludes and Examinations. Terrible title. It involves the Vorlons going up against the Shadows for the first time. Ambassador Kosh saying that he won't be able to go with Sheridan to Zaha Doom, Sheridan having a dream about his dad, and a devastating ending that I never saw coming. Now, that's an interesting call. Uh, before you, I think you might want to talk about that. I'll go back just a moment, though, to the Guilty Pleasures episodes. When I mention Zaha Doom as a Guilty Pleasure episode, it's from the point of view that I put it on to elicit certain emotions, because I know there are certain scenes I want to see that are going to make me, you know, burst into tears. And that's a very sort of guilty pleasure thing to do. I do acknowledge that it's a good episode in general, but that that's why I treat it like a guilty pleasure episode because I'm using it in a very deliberate way to make me emote. Yeah, absolutely. And in and with regards to interludes and examinations, I actually was tossing up between that one and confessions and lamentations as my uh, runner-up uh, favorite episode to to to, to talk about that sort of tone of episodes, the ones that can really have, rip out your guts at the mm. ending. So that was very much on my shortlist, as was 
signs important. We said at the time there's so many good episodes. We wish we could have mentioned them all, Christopher, but thank you for mentioning them for us. And there's a few more ones that our listeners might want to check out. Oh, absolutely. If you've not watched Babylon 5, please listen to our episode on it. Go and pick up the first season or two on DVD. They're very cheap these days. And just enjoy yourself. It's big space opera, lots of fun, lots of tears, lots of laughs. It's it's really good. Now, the email continues. One other thing that I've never understood is why everyone seems to like sleeping in light. Nothing happens in it. The last four episodes or so of Babylon 5 are really light on incident and mainly about characters saying goodbye to each other. I'd be happy to stop watching with the fall of Centauri Prime. Anyway, that's enough from me. Great episode as always. Be seeing you, Chris Bryant. Any thoughts on that, Dave? Uh, I actually agree with him that sleeping in light is not a very good episode. I think it deserves credit, though, for being written and plotted and laid out before the whole series was written so that at least it is a proper conclusion to a series. It's not a great conclusion, but it at least achieves that full stop very, very well. Better than, may I say, a lot of modern TV shows that get to the last episode and fans do hate because they're just, well, where did all that come from? Yeah, I mean, as Christopher says, he doesn't understand why everyone seems to like Sleeping in Light. I think it's a good thing that most people like Sleeping in Light because, it, as you say, it makes it so different to a modern TV show. Yes, but no, thank you for that comment, Christopher. And yeah, once again, check out our Babylon 5 episode, or indeed our Buffy episode. Mm, yes, and Blake 7 coming in January, Dave. Uh, yes, we hope to drop that on the day of the 40th anniversary of Blake 7 at the start of January. Very cool. Now, uh, there are other TV shows and things going on at the moment. I'll briefly mention I've watched Stranger Things 2, which I didn't think was as good as the first series of Stranger Things, but still very, very enjoyable. I've been watching uh, The Punisher, which is super violent, but really, really interesting. It's really non-superhero stuff. It's much more along the lines of government conspiracies and things like that which is really good. I've been watching Longmire, which is like an old pair of slippers to me, and Katie Sackhoff, who many people will know from Battlestar Galactica, is one of the leads in it. That's just a delight. And I believe the new series of Dirk Gently is going very well. It might have even finished by now, and I'm desperately waiting for it to pop on Netflix. Wow. It's short and sweet. Yeah, look, since our last episode, I'm now up to date with Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. Having struggled through the first two episodes like a lot of people, I've really started to enjoy it. Uh, the episode where Harry Mudd comes back for a full episode is, I think, the point where the series really starts to get good. That said, it is a very good sci-fi series. I don't think it's very good Trek. Interesting. And I've seen a few people say that. Uh, as well, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, the pilot of Young Sheldon. That's now three or four episodes into its run. And I'm really enjoying this. It is very, very different to the Big Bang Theory. It is done without a laugh track. It is about growing up different it is about growing up knowing that you're not quite the same as other people i mm. suspect that will resonate for a lot of people who would listen to our podcast and who would you know doctor grew up as doctor who fans not jocks and the rest of that mm. um i'm really enjoying it and yeah, i encourage people to check it out and see if they like it too yeah i've not been watching star trek or young sheldon but they're both shows that i fully intend to watch at some stage so you know quite interested in the, both of them yeah, and ditto me with stuff like Stranger Things. I really want to see that. It's been sort of put aside as a summer watching, hopefully when things quieten down. Yeah, oh, it's a good one. Now, next episode will be 
our Christmas episode and it will come just after the Christmas episode airs on TV. So it'll be pretty much a hot take review of the Christmas episode that we've talked about a fair bit in this episode, Dave, being the regeneration episode and all that. That's right. So we'll be combining our monthly episode with one of our hot take reviews. If you are fortunate enough to see the Christmas episode before we have a chance to record, so that'll be mid to late morning Boxing Day Australian time, please do send us a tweet with your comments so we can read them out and have a few more opinions. But yeah, we'll be looking forward to that. The other thing that we will be including in that is our very good friend Robert Mamoni has had a book published. Yes. So as part of the Lethbridge Stewart series, he has a book coming out called Travers and Wells, which involves, as I understand it, Professor Travers meeting H.G. Wells. Nice. So Very nice. So that's coming out from Candy Jar. Now, because Robbie's not only a friend but lives in the same city, uh, we will be doing a bit of an interview with him about the series and about his book, and that will be included in our next episode as well. Really exciting stuff. Australian authors and Doctor Who, that there aren't many of them out there. You might think Kate Orman. I guess we include John Blum these days, uh, her husband, as, as an Australian, uh, and he's written some. But there aren't many Doctor Who, like, a, a official, a licensed, I should say, writers there's lots of fan fiction writers and fanzine writers and so on yeah but to make that leap from fan fiction to licensed published fiction is a big deal so well done robert if you're interested in this book then just google candy jar travers and wells and you will find it absolutely uh and of course before you hear our december episode we will try and squeeze out a star wars review as well so look out for that one absolutely and as we said blake seven coming early in the new year and then boy have we got some projects for january february march (laughs) yes that's actually going to be a very very exciting time but we might keep our powder dry on that one we will we will all right then until you hear from us next whenever that might be i've been rob and i've been dave and we'll see you then bye bye you've been listening to the doctor who show the podcast where too much doctor who is barely enough subscribe to us on itunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on twitter at the dw show facebook.com forward slash the dw show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined our version of the doctor who theme arranged by george Locke. look him up on youtube folks this podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only doctor who or names and sounds and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the bbc all other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners the official doctor who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.